Hi there, and welcome to the Engage Sales Podcast. Top sales professionals are firmly focused on putting sales enablement and human experience at the core of their organization. The growing importance of understanding the buyer and their journey is crucial, as engagement insights are increasingly proven to improve the sales process, the human experience, and ultimately profitability. For over a decade, we've helped some of the world's biggest brands engage, unify the sales departments, and help enable tracking and analytics into buyer behavior through our industry-leading conferences and online digital media. To find out more, visit engagesales.com. In this episode, we sit down with Sam Robinson, Director of Sales Enablement at Sage. For the last three years, his drive is to make enablement a data-driven business function and not a training function. We speak to Sam about what it's like to work at Sage and more about recent projects and future plans. Hi, Sam. How are you today? I'm very well. How are you? Very, very well. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. So, got some burning questions from my side here. Really, really interested to see what your thoughts are. So, are you first off able to just tell us a bit more about yourself and how you came into the current role at Sage? Yeah, I was... Um, I, my background was originally in sales itself, so I spent 12 years in, in a sales role and then sort of... Um, moved in, into sort of the enablement function through sales training when I, when I, during my time at Xerox. But um, for about uh, three years prior to joining Sage, I was with the Canadian software company OpenText. Okay. And I had the, op- the opportunity to sort of, I started off with them as an individual contributor, um, around about the, the uh, running the EMEA uh, enablement function, um, which they were, they were developing at that time. I then moved on to, to create a, th- a thing called the sales performance practice. And then from that, I ran the, the global sales enablement function um, at, uh, at OpenText. Um, but then I get the chance to join uh, Sage, um, a, a pretty iconic British yeah. brand. And it was, it was an exciting opportunity. It gave me an opportunity to, to move from, if you like, the enterprise space into the, in, into the volume market space and, and, and sort of enha- enhanced my own skills with there, as well as hopefully bringing something to the organization as well. Really interesting. And that background in sales that you talked about just there, you said around 10 years or so, what difference has that made to um, your views on enablement, what's possible, what's necessary? My views on enablement have evolved quite a bit over the piece. And um, as I I said earlier, I came from that, yes, I came from sales, but from the sales training end of the enablement spectrum. But over the past 10 years or so, I've, I've been developing these ideas around enablement being seen as a business function. Yep. And I think the background in sales grounds you in that because it's moved me away from maybe the, the, the initial position I had, which was, you know, driving towards learning outcomes, which are important, don't get me wrong, but more of my focus has been over the last sort of, certainly the last five or six years is, is driving towards supporting business outcomes. Yep. And I think that's the big challenge that enablement faces just now in making itself increasingly, increasingly relevant. So I was making some notes before today's interview and one of the things that really stood out was this idea of performance under pressure and yeah. I'm really keen on kind of understanding a bit more what shaped your thinking on that and for the audience at home a bit more about what that actually is. Well, you, you take a, a slight step back from that, Ralph. First of all, you, 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 everyone talks about starting with a customer. Yep. I mean, let's be honest, what's the opposite? You know, you're so, of course, everyone says it. But to actually do it, is, is a differential perspective because 
for me, the more and more that I've been thinking about it, the more and more I get into it, it, it occurred to me that it was the customer's choice to buy from us, not our choice to sell from us. And it's whilst we try to, that's not to say we don't need selling skills, we do need those selling skills, but we needed to apply them in that customer perspective. And that, in, in its sense, is where that, that initial pressure comes from. And if you look at a lot of the organisations that are about just now, there was a lot of startups that came around around the early sort of 2010, 2012, 2014 period. Those are now in that sort of scale-up um, um, area. Yep. Other companies who have been well-focused are, are involved in maybe moving to more of a SaaS organisation. We're, we're like that in Sage. But with that comes pressure. And the idea here about pressure under performance is, that, is not that our enablement should remove the pressure, but it should enable, pressure is necessary to drive performance. So therefore, you need to have that pressure there in order to, to, to do that. To be effective at it, you need to look at three things. You need to look at the structures you've got in place to support the application of the pressure. You need to look at the skill sets you've got to drive those, those structures, and you need to look at the mindset. That's not, you need all of those three things, and usually the mindset is the one which is, which is given least attention to. However, you know, once you understand those, those three things, you can then start to build frameworks which allow you to apply pressure, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, just out of those three things, I'm really interested to see what your take is on, is there a more important one out of that structure, the skill set and the mindset? You said the mindset is often left, but is there one you think is most important? No, I think there's a balance between the, the three of them, is what I would say. Yeah, it's, it's how do you, you, know, you can argue that, that, that possibly the structure, if, the, if there's poor structures there, the other two don't really matter as much. Yeah. Because what I used to do, I remember when I was at OpenText, I used to open the, the, the onboarding session that they had in, in, in Toronto with three photographs. Probably you know, the first one was what we would, you probably remember it yourself, your jumpers for goalposts. Yeah, yeah. Sort of thing. It was a picture of kids playing football in the park. And of course, they get some skills, they get some um, energy, they get some exercise, they get the ability to interact and all that sort of stuff. Now, the next photograph was to say, right, how do we get them better at doing that then? Well, what we do is we mark out a park, give them some rules, and, and give them some strips. You know, so we apply a structure. Once you've got that structure in place, it's basically the same structure that drives it all the way through the World Cup final. That, that structure doesn't... So if you get a good structure, it allows you to apply the pressure. Because if you think about you know, um, playing football at an under-9s level versus the World Cup final, some would argue, yeah, the pressure increases. And to an extent, of course, it does if you're playing in front of 50, 60, 70,000 people. But one of my sort of... Um, part-time loves, if you like, is I'm a director of the Community Trust that runs wow. Greenock Morton Football Club in the Scottish Championship. And I was talking to the head of youth development and he was saying to me, because we were talking about performance under pressure, and he was telling me that, he said, there is as much pressure on an under eight who has his gran and grandpa and mum and dad watching them as they're going through on goal. He said, I've seen kids who don't have the right mental approach almost collapse under the idea of trying to score a goal when their dad's watching. You know, and you know, so you would say that getting that structure in place is, is probably the most important one because without that, the rest of it is it's like pushing your hands into this into the wet sand. You can almost see the pressure dissipate. Yeah. You can see that you, whereas if you put your hands on a, a solid piece of concrete, then you can do stuff then. Uh, and for the record, I still play uh, football at the level of an under nine, so um, I probably need to apply a number of those rules. Um, so in terms of sales enablement, back to the specific role, what do you see as the main challenge in that sales enablement function remaining relevant right now? 
being seen as a business function. You know, sort of drive it to because what you're starting to do there, Raul, is you're starting to you're starting to look at business metrics. Then, so it's not the, the the traditional enablement metrics. And I'm sure there's loads of colleagues who are watching this just now who are sort of nodding their heads and saying, "Yeah, that's what we're trying to do." But the thing about those metrics is that they're no longer clean. They're not clean, crisp, and clear like you know what was the NPS score for the workshop you ran. That's okay. You know, how do you then change the perspective to say that yes, you did actually move the needle? on that, whether it was whether it was migrations from on-premise to license, whether it was forecast accuracy, whether it was pipeline generation or pipeline yeah. velocity. You know, how do you how do you start to show and that's where that's where we needed to when we looked at the last 12 months in Sage, that's where we our greater focus was on the outcomes of what we had taught rather than what we were teaching itself. That was as important that, that was going to be what it was going to be. That was always important and we didn't take the eye off that ball. But what we did do was focus on the, the the moving the needle on the business outcomes, and we did that by partnering with with you know, with with operations initially. I had, yep. a, I had a good colleague in Molly O'Riordan who who helped me out tremendously, um, and was was on side with what we were trying to achieve. How has that changed over the last year, two years, with recent events? At Flume Sales Training, we've had to change a lot around how we deliver and work with the audience that we work with because of remote working, hybrid, etc. How has that changed at Sage for you and how you work with your audience? So, probably like many other colleagues, we've had to take to the, to, to the, the, the Zoom and the Teams platforms as well to, to deliver that. And I think the way it's changed is that it's... Clearly, it doesn't allow for the for the, the set piece of yep. your six, seven, eight hour day thing. So therefore, you have to be more concise in the modules. But it's not just about cutting down the, the, the learning to sort of bite-sized chunks and making it sort of little and often. It's also about if you're really customer focused, then your customer in this instance is the is the, the frontline seller or frontline manager. And therefore, there's a greater focus in making that content interesting to them. And that's where platforms like you know, um, we use Saleshood in, in, in yep. Sage, but platforms like MindTickle and, and SalesLoft and others are are really important in, help, in helping those things out. Because if you think about it, at the end of the day, for the colleague, it's just another Zoom call. You know, so you have to you have to think of that in terms of how their day is and how their day is structured, and 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 that, that forces you to make the content more in, more interesting and more engaging. I mean, look at your own set that you've got there just now. You've got a lot of colour in the background and your and, and this sort of stuff. So, so there's enough that visually it's appealing to the eye. Well, apart from my face and that, but visually it's appealing <laughs> to the eye. Your face is looking amazing, um, but thank you for the uh, compliments on the set. It is a great place. And I totally get what you mean in terms of keeping the audience engaged. One of the things that I'm hearing from a lot of um, sales enablement directors, heads of, is all around being able to prove that and data-driven engagement. And I know you kind of touched on this before, but when you're now partnering with these different tech companies and making that delivery even more engaging because of the remote and hybrid working, how important is that data-driven side of things? And have you got any examples of how you're doing that? Yeah, so we, when we first started, we were talking, we talked about the idea of getting an enablement dashboard set up. And, and I was all for that because with my initial line of thinking, that was the logical next thing to do. Yeah. But actually, the more I thought about it was, I thought, well, actually, what I should have is essentially just access to Ops's dashboard because that's what they were using to drive the business. Therefore, if that's what they were using to drive the business, that was the business's metrics. Yep. So that's what we should be looking to affect. 
So therefore, what that changed us from, Raul, was, was getting away from a sort of menu-driven enablement approach and getting us down to a sort of data-driven one. So we started to look at things like migration quality. So we looked at the targets for migrating from um, on-premise licensed product to cloud product. That was one of the one of the one of the focus points for us. And we, we looked at forecast accuracy, we looked at um, pipeline generation, we looked at the quality of BDR leads, sales qualified leads that we were getting. And that was a bit of a, an issue in itself. There's a, there's a broader story there, but but essentially we looked at the data points that the that the business was looking at. And I think you know, one of the things that we drove out, we, we ran a program called Adopt a Customer Mindset, which is, as the yeah. name suggests, is about focusing on how do people just make decisions? So it, it was about that sort of thing. And from that, there was, a, there was two outcomes for it. One was called the Key Dependency Review, and the other one was called the Performance Clinic. And what we did with those is we drove those in through the business. So the Performance Clinic, uh, my team ran, I had a team of five direct reports and four indirect reports. The team ran 308 of those over the course of the last fiscal year, which ended in September, which was a fantastic outcome. And the way that it was basically a one-hour session, and they, 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 were, they were running almost every day of the week. They ran for, we, we ran it initially as a hypothesis. So we had um, uh, six of the teams in Newcastle did it, six didn't. And we were able to show with the ones who ran the performance clinic. And the way it was structured, bro, was, was basically you 20 minutes for whether it was product marketing, industry marketing, or enablement ourselves, or to come in and discuss a particular topic, whatever the topic of the day was. We then had 20 minutes where we tried to get interaction between the whole team so the whole the whole team and the manager had to attend and the, there was a sort of interaction with people were learning from each other and then the last point was there was a 20-minute session which was enablement driven which says right, okay how do we take this to the market and then what's the messaging we're going to go out the door with and we, we ran them specifically one of the things we discovered through the hypothesis was the most effective time was nine to ten so we ran them nine okay. to ten then straight out onto the phones with some colleagues did them from four to five initially what we found was that they were going to go when they were watching your, your Australia's Next Top Model or something like that. And, <laughs> and of course, some of it was dissipating overnight, which is fair enough. They're entitled to do that. Yeah, yeah. it was a great life. show. But the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I will take your word for that. Yeah, no, but, apparently. Um, yeah. But, uh, but you know, so, so that, that was what we did. And we got them doing the, doing the thing. And therefore, what we were able to show in the hypothesis was that there was a 14.5% improvement in migrations wow. from on-prem to license. There was a 14% improvement in sales of auto entry, 11% improvement in sales of, of Sage employee benefits. So we were able to show these tangible results. And that was kind of what got us skin in the game. It allowed us to prove the hypothesis. And then, and from that point onwards, it was a lot easier. The business were, you know, we'd, we'd shown that we were serious about being a business-focused function, yeah. and it allowed us to drive forward. So if we kind of go down a funnel from, you talked about the operations there and matching that into what you're doing to make sure you can prove the metrics and the impact you're having. Um, having been, and I probably still classify myself as a salesperson uh, and being a sales leader as well, sometimes salespeople aren't that data-driven and maybe that isn't their focus. What have you done at Sage to kind of help the teams to really action this data? And how have you got that buy-in from the teams into the data approach? Well, I think the thing you have to drive is you have to drive it through the, the frontline managers. So essentially, the performance clinics are something which we are in the process of migrating to the manager. Yeah, so it okay. becomes manager-led rather than, rather than enablement-led. Because as long as it's enablement-led, there's still an element of it seen as the training guys are doing stuff for us. 
and we don't want it to be that. We want it to be a business function. So we're not precious about, about holding on to it. That's, that's one of the areas of it. The other area is that, again, it's around this area of mindset. Now, we talked earlier about your, um, about, uh, your my sort of tenuous sporting connections, but yeah. you know, a couple of my, two of my older sons are both, um, or were both professional golfers at, at, at a sort of fairly sort of, you know, sort of, um, a sort of challenge tour type level. And, and, but one of the things that I noticed with them was, the difference between a, a, a sports person and a salesperson is the sports person has a craving for data to get feedback. When we started off this journey, a lot of salespeople would say to you, you know what, Sam, I'm okay. I, I, was, I was in a training course five years ago. You don't have to bother with me. I'm okay. I'm fine. <laughs> and it's getting them across that mindset that says, how do we get you onto, you know, I mean, the first question I used to ask the manager was, well, does this guy really have five years experience or do they have one year five times? Are they moving? Now, there are obviously external drivers for change as well, Ralph. In, in Sage, it was the move from being sort of an on-premise license company to a SaaS organization. Sure. That was, that was a big driver for change. People were, were readily sort of adopting that. Plus, the, the availability now of sort of BI dashboards are, are, are a big sort of driver for that change because you can, you can clearly see the data and you can drive the data down to an individual level. And I think that helps with things like, you know, like, like, like Salesforce, for example, as well, because you know, up to that point, people had seen Salesforce as more like an administrative burden rather than something which was genuinely there to help them. Now you start to look at the data points and analyze the areas of there, then you start to move that through. You can, you can look at it at an individual level. The other thing we did is we, we, when we spoke to the managers about development, we, we, we sort of engaged this catchphrase saying, look, gaps are good. So, because one of the managers said to me, how do I get them into this mindset of not thinking that I'm just there to give them into trouble? Or, you know, yeah, I yeah. Said, well, well, first of all, don't give them into trouble. Yeah. And secondly, <laughs> just talk to them about the idea that gaps are good. And if you have, because, because if, you're reviewing, if you're reviewing an opportunity or if you're reviewing a, 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 or an account, you know, that, by the way, that was the other thing. There's a difference between an account review and a deal review. Let's, start, let's stop conflating those two things. But when you start to look at those things and say, look, if there's just a gap, a gap just drives an action. The action needs to be executed. That execution needs to be reviewed. As part of that review, you'll see another gap, which drives another action. So you just go action, execution, review, and that keeps momentum going in the deal. And we started to see that, you know, sort of, that was one of the things that started to have an impact on, on the forecast accuracy. Still got a wee bit of work to do there, but that was, the, that was one, of, one of the areas that we, that we started to look at in, in forecast accuracy that helped. The other thing in forecast accuracy, Raul, just to finish that point, was, was um, when we looked at it, it was, it was recognising that the problem we had with forecast accuracy was a front-of-pipeline problem, not an end-of-pipeline problem. Uh, tell us a bit more about that. Well... It, it sort of it started a conversation I had with one of the managers probably about twelve months ago, and they were talking about we'd set off with the Sage's fiscal year runs from from October to October, okay. uh, sorry, September to September, big one. And what we'd started off last year was with this idea of start with the customer. So there was this big thrive for let's get some customer focused metrics in there, and everyone was trying to sort of bend your know, ridiculous metrics into your. Know, adding the word customer onto everything just to make, make it a customer-focused metric. But when you start to think about it, one of the main customer-focused metrics was forecast accuracy. And, but the thing was, when the forecast was inaccurate, we tended to look at the end of pipeline activity. Could we get them better at negotiating? Could we get better at handling the customer? Could we be better at not discounting these type of things? Yeah. 
But in order to be better at those things, the problem that we discovered was actually at the front of the pipeline. We hadn't actually done the qualification well enough. We'd done enough qualification for it to move in the customer's eyes, but we didn't really understand what was their business and personal drivers. We didn't understand what the bigger business issues were and what the impact was of those issues on the business. Therefore, as we started to develop the gap, the gap wasn't developed as significantly as it could have been. So that when we got to the, the present solution stage, there was a number of times when the customer said, well, it's a great idea, but I'm not paying that for it. Yep. You know, because we hadn't built the value on it. So therefore, it wasn't an end of pipeline problem. It was a front of pipeline problem. Makes perfect sense. And, and one of the that's essentially an initiative that you are looking or had pushed into the business. Um, when you were trying to get new initiatives working at Sage, who do you see as the core stakeholders to help enable that? And, and also maybe as um, an agnostic answer, taking Sage out of it, are there any uh, typical blockers um, to changing the ways you do things in terms of the sales enablement function? There's always blockers. I mean, the, the, the typical ones that I would go to, I would, I would go to, um, I go to the sales leadership, I go to operation, I would go to marketing. Yep. Those would be my, my initial three that I would go to to talk about any particular thing, because that tends to be where most of the drivers are coming from in the organisations. But agnostically, again, one of the beauties of doing this adopt a customer mindset program that we did was it's based on the psychology of human decision making. Yeah. So it says right at the start, you know, you have to have a good motivation to move, is what they call it. But the blocker to that, there's always a blocker to every stage. The blocker to that is called justification. And what people are doing is justifying the status quo. Here's what we've always done. We tried that five years ago. It didn't work, Sam. So therefore, you understand that. So as an organization, as an enablement function, when we started to look at it, we would look at these things and say, okay, what is it we want to do? Who would we go and talk to? So yeah. we basically built our own terrain map and said, right, who are we going to go and talk to? Right, if we're, so if we're going to go and talk to Raul, we know Raul has always got a thing about such and such, so let's, how are we going to handle that? So we sort of, we started to work out, we basically sort of, used, you know, sort of, sort of sucked our own sauce sort of thing on this and, yeah. and did, did what we're asking the sellers to do. We, we built a terrain map, we built a storyboard, we, and, we, you know, and we try to do these things always on one page because we think that one page drives clarity. Yep. It's not that it's not, I mean, you've been in them as well, Raul. You'll, you'll have seen them, these account reviews where people have got all sorts of, sort of smoke and mirrors and lovely pictures and mystical views into the East and all this sort of stuff to hide the fact that they don't actually have any data there. I mean, I was on, I, I did a, an account review with a guy called Brian Anderson at OpenText. Fantastic guy, one of the first um, um, account execs that we had that earned a million dollars in a year. And Brian used to run the Wells Fargo account and used to take about 12 to $14 million a year out of them. But Brian still had the Wells Fargo account on one page. We had a one-page template wow. that we gave. But that wasn't because that was all Brian knew, but Brian knew how to distill it into one page. Yeah. You know, but these are the key points. And therefore, when you watched an account review with Brian, Brian, you thought, this guy really understands what he's talking about. And he's really, really clear about it. It's the ones who try and say, I've taken your one page and I've put it into... Because it used to be sort of history of the account, current situation, strategic vision, and there was three questions in each. What we used to get, the ones who didn't know would split that up into three slides because that would give them longer talking points, thinking that the longer they spoke to us, the more we would run out of energy to you know, just let them go. But that was where you had to sort of circle back with the manager and be really clear as, what, what is it you're actually asking here? You're... Are we talking to the right people? Are we talking about the right things? That's all That's all you want to know in a terrain map. You don't want to know anything, but you can waffle away all you like, but are we talking to the right people and are we talking about the right things? So we started to sort of get the managers to chunk up as they were doing that. And that was 
that was how we, we, we sort of got the buyer. So we did, did exactly the same ourselves. Who are we talking to? What are they likely to object to? How are we going to handle those, those, those objections? Love that. And, and actually, it's, it's very much in tandem with what we do at Flume. And one of the big pieces we talk about is to make it easy for the buyer, prospect, client to say yes, which means looking at the barriers, the objections, what makes it difficult, and looking at how they buy and building approaches out of that. What do you see as the toughest part of the buyer journey when working with Sage or another, again, agnostic um, company out there? What, what is tough for buyers at the moment that you've seen? There's, there's no shortage of software salespeople out there. That's probably one of the things. So there's probably there's probably information overload. And, there, yeah. and I think that there's, there's this double-edged sword. You've probably seen the information on LinkedIn where it talks about the um, it talks about the buyer being sort of seventy percent round the journey before they actually before they actually contact a seller. And that that's a, that's a differential thought as well. That's not to say they've, they've went correctly around the journey, and therefore and therefore you know, what can what can happen. Is that, is that the seller becomes lazy and says, okay, they're, they're, if they're 70% around the journey, that's fine. My job is just to push them over the line. Once again, it goes back to that pipeline problem I was talking about earlier. People are then starting to focus on, you know, they're getting excited about the fact that the customer's made the decision. I'll just assume that the customer knows what they're doing. Yep. And gets what, we, what the customer needs is that they need more... Um, uh, comfort that they've made the correct decision in getting there. That's why you need to get back. The other thing that we, that we changed, that we changed some of the, the, the nomenclature that we were using, and you'll have heard this, your objection handling, right? Objection handling is, is something that we started to change with some of the teams. Because as part of the adopt a customer mindset process, because it was done by a, a clinical psychologist, he said, what you see as an objection is actually an anxiety. Customers anxious about something. So, so we started. Well, we started to call it managing anxieties, and we started to see a better take up from the customer. And we talked, but you, if you were, if I was going to go and talk to you about this stage solution, here's what I would be anxious about. Yeah. If I was you, and it, it made it such a softer way of of getting to the same point, rather than object. I mean, I come from a, an objection handling, and objection handling was almost like putting on a suit of armor and getting the sword ready. We're going to go into battle, and I'm going to, you, know, I'm going to. You know, whereas this is what we were trying to get away from. And again, it gets back to being genuinely customer-focused. If you're genuinely <laughs> customer-focused, you will take a step back from that. Yeah. And you will say, look, I understand, I get it. I get why investing in the cloud is, is scary for an, an organization. You say, I get that. I'm not, you know, let me show you how we've done this and, you, and what we've done before with other companies. Now, that's not a new tactic saying, let's show me what we've done before. It was the way of approaching it. It's just it's admitting, admitting, admitting the anxiety rather than saying, I'm going to handle the objection. I, I, I the love objection, that. It's coming from, handling the objection is coming from the seller's perspective, not the customer's. You're doing the same thing. You're just, you're just forcing them to come from the customer's perspective. It's, it's such a clever idea and it's such a simple change of phrase, but it kind of backed up by so much research. If you look at, and I'm sure you know all of this stuff already, Sam, but if you look at the research from Gartner, to be able to buy a B2B solution, you need to be twice as emotionally connected to that purchase than you do in B2C because of the risk of a bad decision, the amount of decision makers, putting your neck on the line. So actually using the word anxiety, what it does is it humanises it, right? It says this person on the end of this call or Zoom conversation is a person and treating them with real authenticity and care as opposed to looking at them like a number. I absolutely love that idea.
It is, and it, it it is it's taken on more traction in the last two years. I mean, don't please don't think that I've got a team full of clinical psychologists. I haven't, and we're not trying to say we're here to sort of solve all your all your problems. But it, it's more the it's more the approach. And what we've seen over the last last few years, but I mean, you look over the pandemic. People, there's been a lot more. Um, Sort of talk about um, about uh, the, the the psychological effects of lockdown, and people are more open to talking about these psychological Absolutely. effects. Absolutely, and therefore it's 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 not about sort of manipulating that to get a sale. It's about being genuine. So like, that's a genuine way that the customer is feeling. They will be anxious, and if you recognise that they're anxious, just say, "Look, I get it. I'm with you on this. I would be anxious if I were in your position. I would be anxious about doing this." So therefore, let me show you how we've done that. Does that alleviate the anxiety? The answer is yes. Go look. Are there any other anxieties that you've got? Yeah, yeah. Show them that you're empathetic with them, and you can take it. And, and that's what that's what we're that's what we're trying to get out of that, and trying to get that sort of. I mean, it goes all the way to the the, the front end of the pipeline as well. We we talked about this idea of sort of leading with insight. How do you lead with insight? And that you know, the, the, those are the things that start to force this. The good sellers have been doing it for years, Ralph. This, sure. this is a new thing, but. You know, it, what we need to do is get the mass to do it. You get them to do that. So at both ends of the pipeline, there, there, are, there are things that we've, we've done there. Really interesting. So tell me about how you oper operationalise um, an enablement strategy. So whether it's the leading with insights or whether it's more um, some of the stuff you talked about, the anxiety approach. I'm sure there's tons of other examples. The oper operationalisation of this. Give me an example. How do you do that? So though, uh, earlier I spoke about the performance clinics and the key dependency reviews. So out of that that um, that program that we ran, the, the adopt a customer mindset thing, the, the embedding of the, the running of the program wasn't the problem. That was relatively straightforward. You've got X number of teams. Here's your slot. You go and do it. And that 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 was business as usual. But that wasn't what we were trying to achieve. What we were trying to achieve was a movement on the number on the and and the, it was the it was using. The particular in, the, in the, the, the medium segment where there was a longer term selling cycle, the key dependency review was the sort of initial driver. In the in the volume business, it was the performance clinic. But we're now starting to see a, uh, the, the performance clinic move into the medium segment as well. Right. Um, and that, there's no reason why it shouldn't. So, so those were the two key factors in operationalizing it. I mean, if you take the performance clinic, let me give you a live example of that. We had a we have a product called Sage HR. Now, as the as the name suggests, it comes no surprise. It's an HR solution. But most of the sellers that, we, that we're, were tasked with selling it came from the back office financial services support software, which is what we're known for as an organization. So therefore, it was them who had the anxiety yeah. about going to sell this thing. Now, what we got was we, we, we cut a bit of a break as we were doing it because there was a, there was a, a piece in the Times, I think it was, um, um, and uh, followed up in the sun, so pick, pick your newspaper. Um, and, but they were talking about the government making it mandatory for every organization to have to, to offer remote working uh, you know, and, and that was that was a test balloon that the government had flown so therefore what we did in the performance clinic that day was say look let's look at the newspaper here's what the newspaper said how can we take that as a as a oh, message to our customers so we we, we spent sort of you know, we, we spent the sort of sort of 20 to 40 minutes discussing that and then saying, right, okay, how are we going to take that message? What it did was it allowed the, the sellers who had been given product training, but just a lack of maybe confidence in using it, it gave them something to talk about which wasn't stage HR. So we're trying to encourage them not to lead with the product, which was the right thing anyway. But this was something that they could go and say, look, tell us what your thoughts is on this government test balloon. What would that mean for your organization? How do you handle it just now? What do you, are the impacts that you've got? So we started this this 
conversation going on, which was which led to, I think we, we saw something like a 12% increase in Sage HR products. In fact, one of the, the sales directors told me that Sage HR was a product that we bought. We, we bought this company called Cake HR initially and changed the name. And we got to the stage where we were selling monthly what they used to sell annually of that product. Wow. You know, now, please don't think I'm taking enablements, taking the, the, the credit for that. But th this is one of these examples where we played a role in moving that mindset that allowed the sellers to go and talk about something which wasn't product specific. Amazing. So um, tell me about, last question, the future of sales enablement as you see it. It sounds like it's making a massive difference at Sage right now as it is in so many companies. What do you see the future holding? The future for me is, 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 is what I said right at the start, Rob, is, is being this data-driven, business-focused function. My goal is for enablement, your whatever it happened to be, is to be seen as a business function. I think that's what we need to be. We, the, the, you know, don't, you know, for those of you who enjoy doing the training, and I enjoy doing the old song and dance act as well, that will still be there. It's still a component of it. But the rationale for doing it is to affect a business metric. And that's, that's, where, that's where the challenge is, and that's where, the, that's where I'd be driving teams to be really myopic about that. How do you, what's the business metric you're affecting, and how are you going to do it? Amazing. Sam, it's been an absolute pleasure to meet you today. Hopefully, we'll keep in touch. Hopefully, Indeed. you found that really, really interesting, really useful. And thanks so much to Sam for a fantastic opening session.